This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com. I'm at the Colby College Museum of Art in Waterville, Maine, joining three ladies here and starting out with... Elizabeth Finch, Lunder Curator of American Art. Hannah Blunt, Langley Curator for Special Projects. And Lauren Lessing, the Merkin Curator of Education. All right, so we're here today to talk about, you have an exhibition coming up on the 13th, which is this coming Saturday, July 13th, 2013, in case you're listening three years from now. The basis of the exhibition is the Lunder Collection. Who would like to start and talk about that? So as as an introduction, um, in 2007, Peter and Paula Lunder, um, who were longtime benefactors of the museum and Colby College, uh, Peter Lunder is an alumnus of the college, they um, offered as a promised gift their collection of primarily American art, although there are also some works of um, French painting um, and also um, a group of uh, Chinese artifacts. Um, And that precipitated the building of the wing that's opening on Saturday. So the exhibition is entirely dedicated to their collection And there's a separate exhibition of the Chinese material, um, which is combined, which is called Spaces and Places. And it includes uh, the Lunder collection uh, of Chinese artifacts, as well as numerous loans from the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. And that exhibition is organized by uh, Professor Ankeny Weitz, who is here at Colby College. Um, The Lunder collection exhibition has been a collaboration between um, the three of us, as well as the director and chief curator of the museum, Sharon Corwin, and Elizabeth Spear, who is our curatorial fellow here at the museum. Mm -hmm. Now, I just did a walkthrough, and it's a fabulous collection. Just saw some absolutely beautiful paintings. How many pieces in total were there? In the Lunder Collection, A Gift of Art to Colby College, there are more than 260 works. And in Spaces and Places, uh, the Chinese exhibition, there are the 40 artifacts from that collection, as well as about 30 loans. Now, can you just name some of the artists? I mean, there was Homer, there's William Merritt Chase, John Singer Sargent, there's Rockwell Kent, there's uh, Whistler. It goes on and on and on. Go go ahead and name some of the other ones, if you would. Um, Well, let's not forget the ladies. Georgia O'Keeffe, Mary Mary Cassatt. Um, Sorry about that. I didn't mean to. I'm doing interviews with ladies here. Um, They have an incredible range of canonical artists and also um, some artists that might be lesser known but whose work is is wonderful. We have a rare painting by Louis Comfort Tiffany, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, Hannah, you want to... Yeah, and we should also add that um, one area of great depth in their collection, actually one of the first areas that they began collecting was Art of the American West. Oh, yes, Um, I saw that. Beautiful. So um, some beautiful 19th century examples, um, Alfred Jacob Miller, um, Thomas Moran, John McStanley, um, Charles Days, um, and then in the 20th century, a concentration in um, art by the um, artists of the Taos Society, um, which are uh, shown in one particular gallery, um, and that's just a, a beautiful um, area of their collection and area of depth. Um, artists including um, Oscar Burninghouse, Ernest Blumenschein, Maynard Dixon, um, Victor Hennings, among others. So It's beautiful. And I, I just want to say that not only are these major works, but they're 
just great images. I mean, they collected really, really nice images by these artists. So they had some help along the way. Um, so this, another uh, concentration to mention in particular are the James McNeil Whistler works. And there are more than 300 works by Whistler in the Lunder collection. And one entire uh, gallery dedicated to Whistler, as well as Whistler's interspersed throughout uh, the exhibition. I should mention as well that the exhibition occupies both the new uh, wing, which is called the Alfond Lunder Family Pavilion, as well as the Lunder Wing. Those two wings are occupied entirely by the Lunder Collection exhibition. Now let's talk about the collectors. How did they get started and what was the basis of their collecting habits and all that? Well, the, um, the lenders actually talk about the beginning of their collecting really being when they were based in Waterville, um, raising their family, and they would travel around to um, the many uh, options for antiquing in the state of Maine and just buy up little things that, that they enjoyed, small, you know, small works of folk art, paintings, um, odds and ends. And, and it sort of began from there. Um, and then I believe it was in the 1970s that they first focused, um, as I mentioned before, on art of the, of the American West. Um, and, and from there, I don't know, Beth, if you want to sort of add on to that. They also began to collect a few works of, of, of French painting, but quickly realized that that market uh, was uh, just too oversaturated at that point for them to do much with it. They wanted, they, their aspirations were greater than that. So they identified American art as an area where they could really focus and collect in depth and collect master works. So that is, is what they did. Um, the works um, in the Lunder Colville Chinese art collection, that came as a separate interest of theirs. They, um, I think this is, is, is one of the hallmarks of their um, thinking is that they wanted to take on a collection was, was, which was totally outside of their area of focus and, and knowledge and learn something new, which is, a, which is um, you know, one of the lenders, they, they really have a uh, belief in, in learning from art and learning uh, from the object, uh, the art objects directly. Um, so that's why they brought their collection to a college. And it also is very much um, behind the passion with which they approach collecting. Mm -hmm. I forgot to mention the Winslow Homers, too. There's, <laughs> there's beautiful ones. That, yeah. I, I just wanted to add to that that Paula Lunder was a volunteer docent here for many years. And mm. so, um, you know, they, they, have a, they have a deep interest, as, as Beth said, in collecting work that can be used for teaching both at the college and to serve the 3,500 school children who visit us every year from all over Maine. Oh, really? So, wow. That's true. And so, you know, it's, it's very interesting to me how they, um, they will purchase works of art that, um, that inform other works in the collection. So although the core of their collection is American, is American art, um, and with this, you know, wonderful collection of Chinese art as well, um, they, they have recently purchased prints by Albrecht Durer, by Rembrandt, um, because they are so closely related to um, the print tradition that informs the work of an artist like Whistler, and also because they're wonderful objects to use for teaching at the college. Are you aware of any other collection like this going to a, a college museum? I mean, it's a major collection. We, uh, this is the largest collection of American art ever given to an institution of higher learning. Oh, wow. Wow, I believe it, absolutely. Now, how did 
they go about purchasing as far as what type of guidance did they have? Over the years, the lenders uh, befriended many people in the museum world, and they had um, great sort of guidance um, from a number of different curators and museum professionals um, who have become close friends of theirs, and um, including a number of people at the Smithsonian and the Metropolitan Museum, um, and and are always sort of looking for the for multiple p opinions on objects and um, and multiple perspectives. Also, you know, how can this be used for teaching? Is this a, a, you know is this a um, a, a, a fine cast of a particular bronze. Um, and so they really, you know, they, they choose things they like, but then they also really vet them through experts um, and people whose opinions they trust very well. Mm -hmm. Now, is there any images of the collection housed in their home? Has anyone ever seen how they could? They must have had a huge house, first of all. Has anyone seen it in the raw before it came here? Yes. <laughs> um, the Lunders had um, their collection dispersed between three residences, actually. Okay. Um, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, and their, their, well, for the, um, the American West collection in particular was all housed in one residence in Florida. Mm -hmm. um, and prior to, I should say, the others, um, they have, they have a, um, a home in Boston. Um, where many of their whistlers were on display, as well as um, painters from the Boston School and um, other American artists, in particular in that in that home, and then their home in Scarborough um, was also in Scarborough, Maine, was also a location of many of their beautiful American works. Yeah, um, that's how I actually heard about this collection, actually from a friend of mine involved in a nonprofit where they knew each other. We um, here at Colby were familiar with their installations in their homes because we had been there to see them. Um, we retrieved the work directly from their homes um, sort of over the course of the last few years to bring it here for, for the exhibition. Um, so there is documentation of how they had it displayed in their homes. Yeah. Yes. So they gifted this collection and did they just empty their house out or did they start collecting again? They are still actively collecting. They are? Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, so, so they, they were probably getting itchy to collect again or something. Are they collecting similar pieces, do you know? Um, yes, I mean, they're, they're adding whistlers as, yes, I mean, they're, they're still very actively collecting and adding to their collection. Um, so, yes, is wow. the answer there, yes. Yeah, so they have three houses to fill back up again. <laughs> I don't know if they'll go to that extent, but... Yeah. Well, great. Um, let's see. Let's let's talk. I think it was you that we'd be to Beth that we would talk about the contemporary art that they have. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Um, their contemporary art, um, the, the the way we've organized it in the exhibition, it begins in the early 1960s, um, where there are works by um, Jasper Johns. There's a beautiful print by Jasper Johns, a wonderful painting by the San Francisco artist Joan Brown. Um, so they have also been, as they have done in their 19th century collection, um, been very smart about identifying artists of um, great worth who might be less known um, than someone like a name like Jasper Johns. Um, some of the hallmarks of the contemporary collection would be an interest in um, realism, photorealism, uh, minimalism, um, 
Uh, there's a greater emphasis on photography in that section of the collection. And then all the way through to the 21st century. So there's a work by Maya Lin, um, an installation of um, meticulously inserted pins that form the shape of uh, the Kissimmee River, a topographic map of the Kissimmee River, a river in Florida that feeds the Everglades. Um, so a work that speaks to the fragility of um, the, the natural environment in this country, um, as well as works in the 19th century that speak to its great size and its tremendous you know, sense of infinity as well. So there, those are instances for us to, to real sort of teaching moments that we can do between the contemporary collection and the, 19, uh, and the 19th century. And I should note as well throughout the whole Lunder collection is a real interest is in sculpture, which is somewhat unusual for, for private collectors since it's often easier to, um, to present or show in your home a two-dimensional work as opposed to a three-dimensional work. So um, a love of sculpture from the outset of their collecting. So there was two very early cast American bronzes. Can you talk about that? Yes, I'd love to. Um, we actually have the very first bronze sculpture ever cast in the United States in the Lunder Collection. It's a a figure, a statuette um, by Henry Kirk Brown. It was done in 1849 for the American Art Union in New York. Brown, like most mid-19th century American sculptors, he went to Italy to study sculpture and, um, and to work there for several years. But unlike most sculptors who stayed in Italy, where they could have access to the best materials and, the tra and trained studio assistants and the lucrative American tourist trade, Brown went back to the United States really for patriotic reasons. He really wanted to begin a tradition of sculpting in the United States. And so he, he brought with him two um, skilled French bronze casters and set up a foundry in his all wooden Brooklyn studio building. So it's kind of amazing that he, wow. you know, he didn't burn most yeah. of Brooklyn to the ground. That's but um, but he, he was asked by the art union to make a sculpture with an American theme. And so the very first sculpture that he cast Choosing the Arrow is a, a little statuette of a Native American youth, um, and it was also one of the very first nudes to be displayed, male nudes to be displayed in the United States. It caused quite a stir. Really? Um, yeah. <laughs> the following year, he, he cast, in 1850, he cast Philatrice, which is um, a woman spinning. It doesn't seem to be uh, an American theme right off the bat, but it actually, one of our students, um, in a writing course we taught in the museum last semester, did some research on it and was able to connect it to the controversy over young women working in the mills in Lowell, Massachusetts. So, oh, yeah. mm -hmm. um, and they're a pendant pair. We have them displayed on either side of a doorway. Yeah. Now let's talk a little bit about the school here. What is the art programs like here? So the museum began as part of the art department and that's, that's typical of a lot of college and university art museums. Um, and then as the collection grew and as use of the museum grew, it, it, a director was hired um, and it became a separate department. But we are still very closely connected to the art department. As Beth mentioned, the Spaces and Places exhibition of um, the Lunder Colville Collection of Chinese Art is curated by Professor Anthony Weitz, who is an art historian um, who teaches in the art department here, who teaches Asian art. Um, the, the, um, museum and its collections are used really by faculty and students across the curriculum at Colby, but our heaviest use is, is in the art department. And that's typical, I think, of a college and university art museum as well. 
Um, so we're, we, we collaborate with the faculty in the art department here. We, we have a very close connection to the students who are art majors and art minors at Colby. Um, and you know the, the two departments really exist symbiotically. Now here's probably a, a layperson question because I never went to art school or anything, but do art students actually ever copy the works? Sure. Okay. They do. So um, they're a little bit limited in terms of how they do that because um, we, we don't allow painting in the galleries. Very, very few um, museums do. Uh, so, you know, because we're, we are, one of our primary goals is to protect this collection and sure. keep it on view in perpetuity, um, just as it is today. And so, um, the art faculty have been very creative in how they have their students copy works in the museum. And we have students draw from the collection, of course, but Bevan Engman, who teaches painting here, um, does a project with her students where they, they create collages, um, where they uh, arrange scraps of paper, um, painted paper in grayscale on uh, a piece of um, artist board. And the, they're actually amazing every year. They, they do a wonderful job sort of capturing the composition and the values of works in the collection. Mm -hmm. Now, can we go over the different exhibitions? They're all opening up on the 13th, right? Well, so in addition to the Lunder Collection exhibition um, that Beth spoke about in the Alphon Lunder Family Pavilion, the New Pavilion, and the Lunder Wing, um, there is Spaces and Places, um, Chinese art from the Lunder Colville Collection and the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, which is in um, our Jetty Galleries. Um, there is in the Davis Gallery, um, A Thing Alive, Modern Landscapes from the Marin Collections. Um, John Marin? John Marin, uh -huh. um, yes, uh, works by John Marin and uh, paired with photographs from um, Norma B. Marin's collection, yes. John Marin's daughter-in-law. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, so that's a wonderful exhibition uh, curated by our curatorial fellow, Elizabeth Spear, which pairs um, Marin's landscapes with um, photographs by um, Walker Evans, um, um, Berenice Abbott, um, <laughs> among others. Um, and then we also have um, an exhibition of American weather vanes from um, yeah. from a private collection um, in great. Yeah. yeah in the Sage Gallery, um, and finally um, our our uh, nowhere but here um, gifts from the Alex Katz Foundation, which Beth can speak about, um, and then of course a matter of light, um, which is curated by our Katz curator Diana Tweet um, in the Paul B. Chef wing for the works of Alex Katz. So Beth maybe wants to elaborate on a few of those. This is an opportunity for us, in a sense, institutionally, to have a new chapter in our history. Um, as Lauren mentioned, we were founded by the art department, and teaching is absolutely integral to what we do. Um, and we have used, since the, the Lunder GIF has been, to say the very least, transformative for us. And, it, and the period of time that it kicked off, which is figuring out what kind of a new wing do we need? What, how, what exactly does it need to serve? Um, we're sitting right now in the Land Day Teaching Gallery, which has been a repurposed gallery that will allow us to bring out works from the collection. It, it basically expands a program we were already working on. In addition, we will have, um, in, the, in the Davis Gallery, where the Marin collections are currently on view, in the fall, that will be uh, repurposed as our curricular galleries. So during 
the uh, school year, we will have multiple classes using that um, from all across the disciplines, various interdisciplinary, so not just the art department, but other, other departments as well. Um, that will be happening here. So the lender gift gave us time to reflect and think institutionally about the ways that we could strengthen our programs. And so I see all of the exhibitions that are opening presently as touching on not only the tremendous gifts from Peter and Paula Lunder, but also um, our close ties to Alex Katz, who's, um, whose history with the museum goes back essentially to its founding. He was at the Skowhegan School of Painting and Sculpture in the 1950s and developed a connection to the Cummings family who had founded the Skowhegan School of Painting and Sculpture and were also very important to the founding of this museum. Um, and someone like Norma Marin, whose family has been so generous over the years to us, um, our Marin collection essentially is a retrospective of the artist's work in, in all media and is a, we consider it important to, um, to the teaching of American art here, absolutely. Uh, so, so having all of those collections represented is appropriate, I think, um, as well as the work that the Katz Foundation has done to um, pinpoint important emerging artists. Um, the Katz Foundation has given us more than 200 works of art since it was founded in 2004, and Alex and Ada Katz had already begun giving us works prior to that. So this is a um, continuing from that, um, their, their beginnings. Um, and they have also given us uh, numerous works by Marston Hartley, two of which will be on view um, this summer and into the fall, as well as our first ever painting by Arthur Dove. And, and to have an artist's eye like Alex Katz identify those works, you can imagine um, how strong they are and how interesting they are to bring into the collection. I, I wasn't sure if you're aware that we are also publishing a catalog um, to celebrate the Lunder gift. Oh, great. And many of the museum professionals um, who have been great advisors to the lenders over the years have contributed to this catalog. Um, we can make sure you have a copy before you leave, but um, it's a hardcover um, and 385 pages. It's a companion volume to our 50th anniversary catalog. Um, and there are 24 authors um, writing on different areas of the collection. Um, there are s seven major section essays that talk about the sort of major areas of their collection. And then within that are shorter, um, what we called reflection pieces by, um, by curators and um, other you know, academics, other people um, on particular areas of depth. So, that, so there's a reflection on Whistler prints. There's a reflection on Mary Cassatt prints. There's a reflection on Winslow Homer. Um, discussing works in the Lunder collection. So we'll make Great. sure you have one of those wow. on the way out. Yes. I'm excited about that. Okay, so now I'm going to ask you all a question. We'll start with you, Beth. What's your favorite piece here in the Lunder collection? Um, that's almost an impossible question to I answer. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> um, but for the sake of this recording, I will answer it. Um, 
I would say um, James McNeil Whistler's painting, Chelsea and Ice, um, nice. which you just had the opportunity to see. Yes. And you remarked about um, what a wonder and what a feat of painting it is, um, the way he is able to capture uh, London on a misty morning, perhaps, when uh, the Thames had entirely iced over. And he was working from his home when he painted that um, and must have had the window open. So it also speaks to um, the struggles of artists. <laughs> but he was able, he also began, was making choices in, in how he represented, so he, and how he represented London. London. So he's um, moving towards a, um, a kind of idealization in a sense. Um, it's a, it's a be beautiful work of um, aestheticism and um, the sense of, of, the sense of the city um, and the way it interacts with the atmosphere is I think just astounding, always astounding to me. That's a very nice answer. Mm -hmm. Hannah? Um, also a completely impossible question to answer, but I'll talk about one that I'm particularly fond of. Um, there's a, um, a painting in the Civil War gallery by Eastman Johnson called Party in the Maple Sugar Camp, um, which is a study for um, a painting that, that Eastman Johnson never actually completed. He did um, over 25 different small sketches and large scale sort of oil studies of the theme of the sugaring off party in the Maine woods, which was his, Maine is Eastman Johnson's native state. Um, and this is actually the first major painting from that series of studies to um, be in a public collection in the state of Maine. Um, and it represents um, a maple sugaring party in the town of, Fa of Freiburg, which is not too far from here. Um, and it's from uh, the early 1860s during the Civil War. And I just, it's just the most lively, beautiful, you know, sort of oil painting. Um, and and there's, there's just a great deal of, of um, things that I think he was trying to work out as far as composition and figures and, um, and the theme itself, which I think he was working towards a major painting on, on a subject that had a particular sort of significance at that moment in time. Um, maple sugar was sort of considered to be a pure form of sweetener because it was, um, it was an alternative to cane sugar, which was um, harvested by slaves in the South. And so abolitionists were often sort of speaking of maple sugar as this, as this sort of better sweetener. Um, and I think, I think that that was playing into his interest in that um, subject, so. Thank you, Lauren. I'm going to pick two because um, <laughs> I'm the last person, so I can. <laughs> well, you could uh, always ask me one. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's a good point. Um, I, two, I'm a sculpture historian by training, and so um, I'm going to pick uh, Joseph Mosier's white marble figure, Undine. Was that the one with the drape over the yes. face? I love that. Yes, I wanted to talk about awesome. that. That was just beautiful. Visually stunning and also very, um, very intellectually rich. Um, Joseph Mosier was one of those American sculptors I was talking about earlier who worked abroad for his entire career. He'd actually um, been in business. He was quite a successful businessman before he came, became a sculptor, and he only started making sculpture um, in, in his early middle age, which is kind of fascinating. And, and as a middle-aged woman, I find that really hopeful that you can just sort of take something up and become that good um, in your 40s. But, it, but it's a beautiful sculpture. Um, it, it is... A, a draped figure of um, a woman who was actually a water nymph 
so it's quite, it has quite a tragic story, as many of these white marble figures that were carved in the 19th century do. And um, she is raising a, a wet veil off of her shoulders and off of her face. And it's carved so beautifully that you can see her figure, or her, her features emerging behind the veil, um, which is a, a tour de force of stone carving. But it's also um, thematically really interesting because the, the character of Undine, um, she's a fairy tale figure that was represented in a number of plays and operas and ballets in the 19th century, so she, she was quite well known. She is a wronged wife, so she, you know, she falls in love with a mortal man, he marries her, but when he discovers her origin, he abandons her for a mortal woman and she has her revenge, she drowns him with a kiss. So these figures were actually wow. displayed in private homes and I, in the 19th century, and I love the idea of um, some traveling American woman. It was usually women who bought them, you know, setting Undine up in the parlor as a beautiful object, but also a sort of perpetual warning <laughs> to her husband <laughs> to remain faithful. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, you can just imagine her sort of looming over the couch as a warning to, you know, not stray. But um, <laughs> the other figure that I want to mention is Ailey Nottleman's Circus Performer, which, although it was created 50 years later, is also um, a statue that has a kind of theatrical character to it. As you might imagine, it's a circus performer. Um, it's carved in wood, so it's very different material. It's very influenced by the Surrealist movement. But I think both figures are beautiful sculptures. They're both slightly uncanny. And I find that really interesting. Okay, so the exhibition starts July 13th here in Waterville, Maine. Um, they can get directions and information off of the website. Can anyone throw the website at me? www.colby.edu slash museum. I'm with Elizabeth Finch, Hannah Blunt, and Laura Lessing at the Colby Museum of Art in Waterville, Maine. Thank you very much, ladies. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com.